Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to the writer and editor, Sarah Rich. Sarah frequently writes about design and food, and her work has been published in places like Dwell, Wired, The Atlantic, and Fast Company. She also recently helped edit Leave Me Alone with the Recipes, which is this really fascinating new book about the often overlooked designer, C.P. Pinellas. The book is sort of part monograph, part cookbook, part tribute, and just a great introduction to a designer who, in my opinion, deserves much more notoriety than, uh, than she is often given. But my first introduction to Sarah's work was actually a few years ago when she edited a Medium publication about design called Reform. The publication built itself as a field guide to the designed world, and though it only existed for, I, I don't know, 10 months or so, it, they published some truly excellent pieces of design writing on topics from Disneyland to farming to speculative design to autonomous cars. Some of the essays they published there had a profound impact on my own thinking about design writing or, or design criticism or kind of, you know, whatever you want to call that discourse. And it really was the kind of design writing that I aspire to. In this episode, Sarah and I talk about Reform, how it started, what her editorial plans were, how they commissioned stories, as well as how and why it ended. We also talk about her new book and the influence of C.P. Pinellas. We talk about the challenges in financially supporting design writing, as well as how her own definition of design has evolved over the years. This was a, a really fun conversation for me. I'm a huge fan of Sarah's work, and especially, as you'll hear when we talk, still miss Reform a lot. All the archives are still up, and I have links to the pieces that we talk about in the show notes, so I encourage you to go take a look and see the kind of writing that they published there, and enjoy this conversation with Sarah Rich. I kind of came to your work three or four years ago, but I don't know too much about your early background. And so mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to start with, you know, kind of going as far back as we can with where your interest in writing came from or why you how you decided you wanted to be a, a writer um well I think I always wanted to be a writer from you know childhood um and I don't exactly know where that came from I didn't have professional writers in my um family but uh I was just interested in writing stories and always did it as a kid and um I think had some kind of notion that I wanted that to be what I did uh eventually, but I don't think I knew how I was going to get there. So, um, in college, I majored in cultural and social anthropology, which was, oh, wow. uh, which was in part just a way because it was a, um, it was a major that allowed you to take a lot of courses outside the department. So I actually did a lot of religious right. studies and I minored in, uh, in creative writing and poetry. Um, but I did, I did a lot of different stuff, but I do feel like, um, in a way, the, the professional life I've built is a cultural anthropological kind of profession. Mm -hmm. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about culture and people and behavior and, you know, the lives we lead. So, um, so, but I, I would say the way I really, um, kind of made a intentional go at it was, um, when I was probably like, you know, 24, a couple years out of college and I, took an internship at dwell magazine. Okay. And that was, that was how I actually, um, also discovered design. I mean, I didn't have an interest in design. I don't think I really had an idea of what design was. Um, and when I went to dwell, I was able to, you know, just spend whole days like sitting in their little offices, um, yeah. on the internet, on the early internet. <laughs> Cause it was, you know, it was early internet days. And so the design space, and the internet was awesome because there weren't that many people and um, it was just such a different world. I, I just have such, such nostalgic feelings for those days because I feel like for me it was a real um, time of discovery and just 
I, you know, there are people that I met at that time who were starting to blog about design online who are still my colleagues and friends and, um, it's changed so much, but I, you know, I sort of started to figure out like what, what design meant and, and it meant a lot of different things, especially cause working at dwell, it was yeah. kind of one thing. And then, you know, as I moved on from there, it became a lot of other things. Um, so after I, right after I left dwell, I, I mean, if you really want to hear the details, um, kind of the funny story of, of early like serendipity is that yeah. I took a job, um, there was a posting on a site that probably still exists called Creative Hotlist. Oh, like, yeah. Um, I, I remember okay. that. So there was a post on Creative Hotlist. It didn't say who had posted it, um, but it said something like, need writer. Um, you know, it said, need writer. You know, we're illiterate. Need writer. Corporate hacks need not apply or something like that. <laughs> and I, I, it was such a short post, and I had no idea what it was. And I sent my thing in to them. And what it turned out to be uh, was the major global architecture firm Snoheta. And they were, oh, wow. um, they were launching a tiny little um, prefab house company. Oh, um, and they were looking for a brand writer. And uh, I don't know still to this day exactly why they decided <laughs> to hire me. Uh, they were all in Oslo and I was in San Francisco, but they hired me and I was terrified um, because I felt totally, totally underqualified. Um, and so I bought like a million books about branding and read them all and then um, ended up doing all the brand language um, for this little company, which which launched and existed for a while and then went away. But Snowhead obviously still exists. Yeah. Um, and I learned, I just self-taught, like I learned so much about branding during that time. And they entrusted me with a lot of um, responsibility to giving a voice to this brand. Um, uh, anyway, so from there, you know, I went to Inhabitat and World Changing, which were both at that time, like, um, you know, kind of among the set of design and, and environmental sustainability blogs that were really active. Um, and then came back to dwell as a senior editor later and then went freelance. And I've been a freelance ever since. Oh, okay. So you were at dwell, you you had two kind of Mm -hmm. times I had two rounds. Okay. Yeah, I, I was a senior editor there for like three years. Okay, I didn't realize. So I... I have a couple questions kind of just based on that a little bit. Um, you know, I think I actually think the Snowheta thing is interesting with pre and especially that it was this prefab kind of subdivision or, or, or new, mm -hmm. completely new company, which I, I actually didn't know that. I didn't know they did that. But I recently interviewed Carrie Jacobs. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked a lot about her time at Dwell. Also, when I talked to her and about how so early at Dwell, prefab was kind of core yeah. to, to that magazine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there is that kind of interesting connection between the two, even though you didn't know anything about branding. Yes. You probably had all of that background in the prefab world already. Yeah, I did. And and my most cynical, like, um, many years later self also thinks, you know, I had dwell on my little tiny resume, which consisted of very little. Um, but I think that that was like one of their big targets in terms of like, if they were going to launch this company, they really wanted dwell to pay attention. So if I had been at dwell, and I was in San Francisco, that was probably a good bet for them in terms right. of getting some yeah. press. Right. And indeed, it did work that way. So, um, you know, maybe they weren't sure about this 24 year old out in San Francisco, but at least they felt like they could get like a, a valuable yeah. press hit. Out of it. But in the end, I think I, you know, I delivered on the job as well. That's amazing. I'm going to step back for a second before I kind of ask the question. Something I noticed when I was looking over your entire body of work is that um, kind of two major themes that you return to again and again are design, but then also uh, like food and, mm -hmm. and eating and how we eat and, you know, how we get food and things like that. And so the cultural anthropology, I think, actually makes those two themes make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I kind of see that, that background now a little bit more. Um, but I'm curious when you got the, your first job at dwell or the first time at dwell, and you said you kind of never really thought about design or knew what design was, what, what was it about dwell? You know, did you kind of know what you were getting into, I guess is, is, is what I'm trying to ask. Um, no, I don't think I knew what I was getting into. And I think it was, I think the kind of design I discovered at Dwell was like a first stepping stone towards discovering the sort of much 
more all-encompassing cultural mm-hmm. um, function of design that I feel like I sort of orbit around now. Um, you know, at first it was like architecture, it was houses, it was right. furniture, it was objects, it might have been cities, but, you know, that that's kind of as far as it went um, at that point, I guess. And then I was also very interested, I've always been interested in environmentalism and sustainability, mm-hmm. and so I think in a way that was the next place I went with it. Um, you know, Jill Fahrenbacher was starting in Habitat mm-hmm. like right at the moment yeah. that I left that internship and it was kind of a similar thing where I was, I'd been reading, I think she launched in Habitat. I'd been reading it for like the two weeks or three weeks since she launched it. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote to her and was like, Hey, if you ever want someone to, you know, write some stuff. And then the two of us kind of grew that blog together for the first year or so. And then it grew from okay. there. Okay. Um, but so that was, I would say then kind of the, the next stepping stone where I was like, Oh, design is also a tool for solving these problems that are related to the environment and, and related to, you know, a lot of other things. Um, and then that took me to world changing, um, which really kind of busted open the doors on what design can mean. And that was where like doors of perception and John Thackera and all of these like people that I suddenly came into contact with who are thinking really who were doing what, you know, I and many other people sort of say of of, like using design as a lens through which to really look at like everything. Um, and that, that was what resonated most for me. And that was why also food became an area where I felt like I could connect design because I've always loved and been interested in food and cooking. That's another thing that's just like been with me forever. And so, um, I think I started to crave a way to sort of like merge those two things and that, that, that sort of broad way of examining things through design was a way to also look at food and to look at sustainability all at once. So I did a bunch of that kind of at the, at the intersection of those three things. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so interesting. I feel like that's become one of the, uh, one of the major themes of this podcast. And a thing that comes up again and again, when I talk to people is how, how so many people and myself included design, started as this kind of narrow thing it was about kind of creating objects um Mm -hmm. and then as you know as you work as you kind of see these different things it becomes much more about processes and becomes this lens through which you can look at everything else i also talked i'm sorry to bring up you know all these Mm -hmm. previous guests but i talked to jeff Jeff mainall recently also Mm -hmm. um and he said something that staying at my house he left this morning oh really (laughs) we're good friends yeah oh that's that's amazing Um, I'm a huge fan of his work also. And he said something that really resonated with me and became, uh, when I talked, after I talked to him, it became a kind of, uh, phrase that I've repeated again and again, where for him, architecture was the center, was the center of this Venn diagram of all his other interests. Mm -hmm. And it was this way he could talk about all these other things. And I feel like that's what design is for me. And when I talk about design writing, it is, you know, and design criticism, it's not just, uh, let's talk about this chair or this logo or this poster and what it looks like, but as this lens that we can talk about politics, economics, sustainability, all of these other mm-hmm. things. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know, you know, I don't want to kind of jump too far around and I, I know we're kind of missing some pieces in your background, but I think this actually is a way to talk about reform a little bit because that was one of the things that I really loved about that publication is I feel like that was kind of the guiding ethos of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was wondering if you could kind of one, just kind of describe what, what that publication was and how you kind of got involved with it and what your editorial direction was for the site and how Mm -hmm. you thought about the types of writing that you wanted to publish there. Sure. Um, yeah, the way I got involved with it was, um, that they, uh, medium got a BMW sponsorship to do something. And it was the first time they'd had like a corporate sponsor to Mm. do some kind of editorial project. Uh Um, and I guess it was determined among them that the subject would be design. But that was kind of as far as it went, was like BMW's got this chunk of money and they're going to pay us to make a basically a magazine within right. Medium right. Um, about design. So um, they brought me in to edit that and um, kind of just 
said, like, how do you want to, um, it oh, was, nice. they'd already named it. <laughs> they okay. named it reform and they had done some preliminary stuff with another editor. And then, um, they brought me in pretty close to launch and it was kind of like a crunch to get it launched in time. Um, but they, they really didn't have many parameters, um, around what we would cover. And I felt like what I wanted to do was kind of like, look at, yeah, look at the world, look at culture, um, tell design stories, uh, but that didn't have to, I didn't want to do a product blog. I didn't want to be like a, you know, furniture porn website. Like I didn't want any of that. And, and I think BMW was pretty open to, well, not only open and BMW planned not to essentially interfere in any way in any of the content, the caveat being that there was like a set of posts that were going to be about BMW, but they were going to be design stories about BMW. And those would Mm. be explicitly like those were the sponsor posts. And outside of that, like I had pretty much total creative license and nobody, um, sort of dictating what it looked like. So, um, I kind of just pulled, I I think I sent an email out to like all of my whole network of writer friends said like, Hey, I get to start a design publication. Um, pitch me. Yeah. And I didn't actually get very many responses initially, um, but I had a few story ideas. And so, you know, the launch was kind of a combination of like some ideas that I had that I assigned to people who wanted to take them. And then a few ideas that people brought to me. Okay. Um, And as time went on, it continued to be a combination of like me having an idea. Either I wrote some of the content, I assigned a bunch of it or, you know, as time went on and the, and the you know, the, the site kind of took hold in a certain community of readers. Um, I started to get more and more pitches from people. Um, okay. and the, you know, not insignificant aspect of it was that we had a bunch of money to pay writers. Um, right. And that was great because I asked writers that I know get paid very well to write in other places if they would write for me. And I felt confident saying like, I can pay you a competitive fee for this piece. And so part of what, um, went away (laughs) when it went away was that money right and so it was a lot harder to to have like a really solid ground to stand on okay was there thought that the publication would continue after the sponsorship yeah i mean they wanted to have another they either wanted bmw to renew or they wanted to find another sponsor but at the time they didn't really have much of a sales engine inside media at all so um they just essentially what I learned, which was very interesting to know, is that many corporations only want to sponsor the launch of something. Oh. They don't want to sponsor the sustenance of something mm-hmm. because um, launch gets you all this earned press, you know, all this just like extra bonus media that's just because it's new. Right. And so they really only, only want to be associated with something that's new. And if it's not new anymore, even if it's doing great and getting tons of readers, which we were, we were breaking through all of the goals that they had set for readership. Um, it didn't matter because they just didn't really want, um, they didn't care. <laughs> so, okay. um, yeah. And no new, no new sponsors came on. There were like a few, maybe this person, maybe that person's going to come and then nobody did. Interesting. I mean, I, I remember when the site launched and and I remember reading I actually just went back and reread your kind of introductory post that mm-hmm. that you had titled a field guide to the design world which I actually didn't remember that phrase but actually ends up feeling like a really good description of what the site became mm-hmm. and I remember I think it was Ian Bogos on Disney and the Magic Band yes um and I read your piece and his piece and was just completely blown away. And this was this was kind of mid two thousand four, early two thousand four. I two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. 2000, yeah. Uh-huh. Two thousand fourteen. Um, and this was right as I was starting to think very seriously about design writing and, and criticism, and was thinking about going back to school. And suddenly there was this publication that was talking about design in a way that I wanted to see more of. Um, so I so I mean all of I'm not just you know, just trying to compliment you. I read <laughs> all of them. I, I loved it. And I was, I was really sad to see it go. How I'm, I'm kind of curious. I, I have two questions that may or may not be related. The, the first one is how, how you thought about the audience or, mm-hmm. or who you thought the audience was or who you were writing for. Mm-hmm. And then how you kind of selected this is a big question, and I'm I'm 
sorry, I, this is probably impossible to answer. How you knew when a story was right for reform and when it wasn't, because it was very mm -hmm. particular, mm -hmm. but it was, but the topics were very expansive. Um, yeah, you know, it was everything from Disney to driving cars to, or mm -hmm. uh, self-driving cars to farming. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of parse that out? Um, well, to answer the first question, I mean, um, who I thought the audience was going to be, I, I was a little unsure because on Medium, especially when we were starting this, you know, now like three and a half years ago, um, the kind of one of the first things I did in part because the, um, editor who brought me in wanted to be sure that we like, capitalized on what was already out in like the whole vast medium landscape, which would be, you know, if there's some, if somebody out in the medium community is writing about design, we want to like pull that voice into our, mm -hmm. into our domain. So I was trying to like search for design stories on medium at first when I was coming on. And I remember like, you know, if you just search, literally search medium for design and it didn't have, yeah. it didn't have like an intuitive search process. But if you did that, what you came up with was, um, was like UX design for the most part. Like right. the, the majority of people were talking about design in that context or UI um, and not not how I think about design. And um, so I was like, hmm, I wonder how we're going to find, if anyone out there is actually writing about design the way I was thinking about it, how are we going to find them? And then also if anyone who's reading Medium right now comes across what I'm doing, are they really going to care? Right. Um, and then outside of who already exists and pays attention to medium, like how are we going to bring in new readers? Um, and I think part of that was a function of, you know, social media because, you know, I have a like modest but not tiny following and then I'm connected to people who have like right. insane followings. And, um, and so there was an extent to which like if we posted a good story, we could generate attention for it well outside of the medium sphere. Um, and then people started to pay attention and maybe they read the next, you know, the next one that came out. Um, uh, and, and yeah, the, that Ian, the Ian Bogus post that went up would, it was one of the launch posts yeah. was super instrumental, I think in, in the launch because it was just such a kick-ass story and Ian's an incredibly good writer yeah. and it was, it hit on design exactly how I intended to think about it in a totally like cultural contextual narrative way. Um, while still being also about this device and it marks so many things about where we are as a, you know, as a culture. And it just did so many things I love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I still love it. You yeah. Know? It's, I reread uh, it recently and it's such a good piece. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, so that was, you know, that was great. And I guess that sort of leads to answering the second part of the question in a way, because mm -hmm. part of it is, I think I just in the course of like, you know, my career, 10 plus years, well, more than that now, um, you know, I feel like I have a network, a community of mm -hmm. people who are kind of thinking in the same little like spaces as I am. And so part of it was like, oh, I could think of people, Ian among them, mm -hmm. who I wanted to just be like, I want you to write for me. And I think if I tell you that it's about design, you're going to interpret that <laughs> the way you're going to interpret it. And I trust that that right. interpretation is going to be an awesome addition to this content. Right. And that worked out many times because um, there were a lot of people who, who do that. Um, and each of them might do it a little differently, but it made the right kind of variety. Right. Um, because it was like, so Ian was going to take it and make it about the Disney world wristband. But then, um, you know, I, I'm like looking at it now. It's been a while, but I'm just scanning, you know, my, my Christina Agapakis, who's oh, a yeah. microbiologist, you yeah. know, where I was like, Christina, write about design. And it's like, she did design for the microbiome, which is completely not about, you know, it's right. another whole world entirely. Um, but you know, so it spanned a lot of subjects by virtue of that. I had a couple people who wanted to write for me super regularly, like um, Paul Lucas, who did a regular thing for me. And he sometimes oh, yeah. came, he was an example. Sometimes he would have an idea because he did a bunch of them for me. And I'd be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And he would be like, no, and he'd give me some really compelling argument. And most of the time I was like, okay. And then <laughs> a couple of times those turned out to be really, really popular, you know, even when I was dubious. Right. Uh, so, how did I, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely, there is to some degree a sort of instinct, I think, around it. Mm -hmm. There's something about having a story be unexpected uh, 
and yet be about something super ordinary. Mm-hmm. I love that type of story. Yeah. Um, you know, another one of my favorite ones that I'm just noticing was um, Sarah Laskell wrote about a place where antler, ant, where like antler farms. Oh you know, yeah. Here are bred to have giant antlers, and then hunters can like pay to access this particular space where they can shoot deer who have been bred to have huge antlers. So that I they forgot come all and, like, about that trophy. one. Which is ridiculous, you know. Yeah. It's like an insane story, and, and in some ways, very sad because these the, the the sort of like animal treatment in that is really um, yeah. troubling. But that being said, like it was a really from a design perspective, like it is really fascinating. Okay, these animals are being bred to grow these things that people want to take home and put on their walls, which mm-hmm. sort of like define their like virility or masculinity or I don't know what. You know, it just has mm-hmm. so many. Mm-hmm. It has so many ripples of significance, and yet the thing itself is quite um, mundane in a way. Right. So I love I love that kind of story. I'm always looking for that. The, the reason I kind of ask that, and, and I, I think you started to answer it a little bit, but something that I think about a lot and something that comes up in a lot of the, these conversations that I have is the challenges of... Um, writing about design for a general audience mm-hmm. without kind of dumbing it down or oversimplifying it so that the people who are in the profession and know this stuff can also enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like so many of the stories that you published there hit that spot where it's, I could see people who kind of know nothing about these subjects who wouldn't consider themselves interested in design read these and learn something and be excited about them. And then me and all my designer friends were reading it mm-hmm. and also learning it. And and so I'm kind of curious how you think about that. Uh, and uh, both from an editor and as a, as a writer of mm-hmm. kind of hitting both of those audiences at the same time. Um, I mean, I think what comes to mind a little way is to extend that whole metaphor of using design as a lens and to say Mm -hmm. that I think, I think I operate with the expectation that people's lenses have like different degrees of, of, um, Um, (laughs) you know, granularity or something. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that there are general readers who are going to read the story and take away one thing from it. And there might be super wonky design people who will read it and take something else away from it, or they'll take some combination of what each other is going to get. But I like to have a story read as an interesting story and narrative from a cultural perspective anyway. And then where the design layers come in might be increasingly obvious to people with increasing amounts of knowledge about design. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I'm looking, Rob Walker wrote a thing about the, sub, the suburbs. Rob Walker yeah genius of design criticism and you know it's like total honor for me to have him writing for me um but he did several pieces and and there was this one that you know could just be read as like a well-written musing about suburbia but you could also take much deeper stuff and he and and that's not to say that the writers aren't doing work to make it a design story I mean they all do and um, they all make a case for why it's about design and it's not just about whatever you know I mean mean, it's in there it's not like it's not like it's only going to be visible to someone who knows about design but I think the interest level that someone might have in the design aspects of it will vary Um, but the story I like to stand on its own as a cool story anyway right yeah did you have did you have a imagined audience there, you know what I mean? Like, not oh. like like an ideal reader, but who who were the types of people that you were hoping would kind of grab onto these stories? Um, I don't think I had that in my head, but I can say, like, in the early going, what was really gratifying is when people that I really respect and admire expressed admiration for what was happening on reform Mm -hmm. that made me feel like okay i'm doing something right Right. because these people think it's good yeah um and that was nice and i you know i could name a few people that that said that but i felt like um you know that's what that's what led me that that's what sort of like gave me a little boost to keep going um and somewhere along the line yeah like i feel like the, the idea that it was a design criticism publication started to 
be mentioned. And that too felt like, oh, that was a very affirming thing because I don't think I would have ever phrased it that way myself in part because I don't feel like I can call myself a design critic based on anything other than what I've done. Um, But I, I appreciated that that was how it was being interpreted yeah. So. Okay. I mean, that's interesting because I that's my last. I have one more question about reform because I I could mm-hmm. easily spend our whole time just going through. <laughs> it's, every fun to, st- it's fun to think about it. I loved it. <laughs> every story that I loved, but that was something I wanted to. I was curious about is kind of, and I I, I don't mean for you to put labels on it, you know, where you don't want to. But do, did you consider it criticism or journalism or, uh, you know, reporting? Like, how did you think about? its purpose? Um, I think, no, I, I hesitate to use any of those labels, partly because, you know, I didn't go to school for theory or criticism or even journalism. And I, um, you know, I don't want to claim to have a certain like pedigree that I don't have. I think I've just, I'm pretty self-taught. Um, yeah. And so, no, I wouldn't call it any of those things. I mean, I, obviously I tried to be like, accurate and fair at the most basic level of like journalistic approach. Um, but I didn't expect this to be treated as, uh, you know, investigative reporting or anything like that. And, um, uh, yeah. And as far as criticism goes, you know, I think that's just a word that I think people, some people use the word criticism and and have a common understanding of what they mean by that. And Mm -hmm. I feel very much at the edge of that population of people. (laughs) Um, like I, I kind of get it, but I don't, I I don't necessarily feel like I have enough of a grasp on what is and isn't criticism to ever claim that what I'm doing is that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. I mean, this podcast started the, I mean, the tagline of it is the intersection of criticism and practice. And Mm -hmm. even I've, I'm a little weary sometimes of that word criticism or critical discourse or something like that. Cause it, it does feel like that carries a lot of meaning and I and I think a lot of the type of writing that I'm talking about and the writers I talk to fit under that but there are also other things that are kind of on the edges but are part of the discourse in important ways uh yeah so I think yeah that's interesting. and I mean just in terms of you asking about like getting a popular audience to read it I mean when mm-hmm. when you start throwing around the phrase critical discourse like you're not really right. um, getting at a popular audience right. and I feel like I, I and many people I know do tend to get a little like academic and wonky and I definitely definitely wanted to avoid that because if I had any idea of what the audience I wanted I wanted to have a good sized audience so right. you don't you know you don't want to start out with something that's going to like alienate a bunch of people right yeah yeah I mean that's a great point I know I said I had one more question that was my last question I do have one <laughs> more question mm-hmm. about it do, did you find that people um I don't know. I don't know. Again, I don't know how to phrase. Did, were people? Did you find that the types of pieces you were publishing, there was a a space for those? Like people were wanting something like that, and you kind of filled a, a the, the the site filled a void for that a specific type of design writing that people wanted. Yes, I really do feel that way. I don't think I set out to do that, mm-hmm. and I don't even know if I quite knew we were doing it as it was happening. But when it went away, I got a lot of feedback that 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 was the case, that it was, it was doing something that other publications weren't doing and, um, and that it was missed for that reason. And that really made me feel kind of, well, super gratified because I felt, oh, wow, that was a really meaningful thing to a certain number of people, even if it was a tiny number, you know, and, uh, and also it it made me feel a little sad because I felt like, wow, well, there, there was this receptive audience that wanted to keep going. It's a real shame that it couldn't just based on circumstances that weren't related to the quality of the content. Right. Yeah, I mean that's there. Uh, that's kind of why I asked because I, for me, it was it filled that gap, and I was kind of curious if that was a a larger trend because I also feel like in the time since there aren't there haven't really been any replacements. I think mm-hmm. there are there are a lot of sites that are kind of doing. I mean, I don't want to kind of talk badly about other sites, but uh, there are a lot of publications that are kind of doing a light version of it, a very popular version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but not with the depth that reform had. And I feel like that is a gap that someone could fill and it's just not there yet. Well, if anyone ever hands me a big chunk of money, I would totally keep it going again. I would do it again. It was one of the, it is genuinely, it was one of the most fun things I did professionally in the last probably five years. 
Oh yeah, that's I. I mean, I, I've told you this many times already, but I it was a great site. But speaking of, I I, I always get self conscious when I spend time talking to people about kind of old work and not talking about what they're doing now. And <laughs> no, sorry. you have you have a new book out also that I imagine is is probably equally as, as gratifying. And I want to talk about that a little bit because we talked earlier about um, a lot of your writing focusing on food and design. And this mm-hmm. book seems like a, a one of the clearest ways where those things came together. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I mean, I, I would love for you to kind of describe what what the book is and how how it even came into being because it's such an interesting I looked at it in a uh, I I will admit I do not I did not buy it yet but I looked at it mm-hmm. in a in a bookstore and it's such a very interesting artifact yeah uh, and so I'd love to hear about that yeah um so uh almost to tell you what the book is I should start with telling you how it came to be because okay. it's kind of a story that led to an object Um, but in, uh, so it's four, it was four years from the, where this all began in 2013. Um, I went to the antiquarian book fair in San Francisco, just kind of on a whim. I think my dad had told me it was happening and I decided to go and I invited my friend, Wendy McNaughton, who's an illustrator, Mm -hmm. um, to go with me. And she beat me there. And when she was walking around and I was headed over from the East Bay, she called and was like, Oh my God, I found this incredible thing. Hurry, hurry. You have to get here and look at this. And, um, this bookseller was selling a sketchbook, um, from the forties that had been in the, somebody's estate for all this time. And had, you know, he'd taken it out of the estate, brought it to San Francisco and was selling it. And it contained all these paintings of food, uh, and hand lettered recipes. The, the paintings depicted the ingredients for the recipe. Mm. And there were like uh, several dozen of them all contained in this book. And we were struck first by just the art because it was incredibly, it was incredibly vibrant. It was painted in gouache. The technique was amazing. The lettering in her lettering was just so like precise that it could only have been done by someone who really knew about lettering and typefaces. And um, so kind of all of that was the first thing. But then we asked who was this woman who did it? Her name was C.P. Pinellas. Mm -hmm. And the guy was like, Oh yeah, she, uh, she was an art director in New York in you know, mid-century. So we looked her up, and lo and behold, she was the first ever female art director hired at Condé Nast at the yeah. end of the 30s and did the original art direction for a whole bunch of major uh, Condé Nast publications and was just tremendously influential. And both of us were kind of, uh, you know, a little stunned that we'd never heard her name. Yeah. Um, me from being in the publishing world and Wendy from the art world, and, you know, her name hadn't come up in all of our time. Um, so we determined that we really, and the, and the work that we had found at the, at the fair was, had never been published. So we were like, we have got to take this home with us and get it published. It's amazing. You you were first just amazed by the artwork and you didn't know anything (laughs) about her at this time until you did this research. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so we called our friends because it was being sold like a piece of art is very very expensive okay. so we felt like we can't buy it ourselves so let's call some friends and see if we can all pool our resources so we did and we called uh, maria popova and debbie millman and we told them what we had found and maria also hadn't heard cp's name debbie was familiar with her from the new york design yeah. uh, world um and so they agreed so the four of us pooled our resources and and bought this thing um wendy took it home and her her wife is a um a firefighter, ex-firefighter, retired. Oh, wow. So she she was like, "You guys, first thing you do is buy a fireproof safe for this thing." <laughs> so um, she bought us a fireproof safe, and we put the thing in there. And then we were like, "Okay, now what?" And uh, and the really cool thing is, um, Wendy has been working with a literary agent for for years named Charlotte Sheedy, and so she called Charlotte and said, "Oh my God, we found this incredible thing. We want to get it published." This woman, her name was C.P. Pinellas, and Charlotte being a longtime New York literary agent said, CP Pinellas, we just have dinner parties together. Like she knew CP socially and professionally. And so she was then able to connect us with um, a guy who sort of was CP's son, not biologically, but he was the son of um, someone CP was with at the end of her life. And Mm -hmm. through him, we were then able to contact her daughter who lives in Toronto and get in touch with this 
family and basically be like, we don't know exactly what we want to do, but we want to publish this work that we found. We want to tell her story, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they gave their blessing for that to happen. We visited her daughter, Carol, up in Toronto and anyway, turned it into a book proposal that was kind of one third biography of CP and design history. um, And then one third the original artwork, which we uh, you know, reproduced really, really high quality reproductions. Right. And then the final third was, uh, was to be, and is, uh, all of those recipes that she had painted updated in more of a cookbook format because right. the recipes as she had put them down were not necessarily totally, um, accurate or didn't hold up as, as written. Yeah. Um, and so with my kind of like, uh, somewhat amateur recipe development skills and, and pretty well developed cooking skills and the help of a recipe developer who's way more experienced. I, um, I redeveloped all the recipes and did like a second version of each one. Oh, wow. So you did that, you actually went through and kind of did that all yourself with this other mm-hmm. person. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. I didn't realize that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of, the, the thing that I like about this is two things is I think you could kind of look at the book almost as a kind of unconventional monograph for CP mm-hmm. also, which is what I really like. And I feel like um, monographs as a, as a form are, there's only kind of so much variety within that. And I feel like you kind of took it into a different direction. Mm-hmm. And, and then also, you know, the fact that all of you only only really Debbie and the literary agent knew who CP was, mm-hmm. that a, a big part of this project is introducing her to a whole group of people that have no idea who she is, even though she was this influential. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of curious how you thought about, you know, not only are we just republishing these beautiful illustrations, but this is kind of an educational tool and is kind of shining a light on someone who probably always should have been in the design canon but wasn't mm-hmm. and is forgotten somehow how you thought about kind of structuring that and bringing her back into the canon or into mm-hmm. uh you know this generation yeah i mean uh one of the things i most wanted to do was to try to find people who had actually known her personally mm-hmm. um because she was, she was born in 1908 and she died in 91. Um, and so, you know, most of her contemporaries have passed and, uh, she did teach at Parsons for a long time. So she had students. Mm -hmm. I found it a little hard to track down students of hers in part because the female students, most of them would have changed their last names when they got married after Mm -hmm. going to Parsons. So it was hard to find them. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I did a little, a little, tracking in that realm and didn't have too much success. So what I um, ended up, you know, the people who contributed, we, we decided we want to have, you know, some different voices telling, approaching her story from different angles, because there's, there's CP as the art director, there's CP from the food angle, because obviously she cared about food a lot. And she made this, you know, personal work that had so much to do with food. Right. And she did a lot of, in her magazine work, she also did a lot of food stories. And then there's, she did a bunch of, well, she was an educator and she also did a bunch of branding work. She branded uh, Lincoln Center in the early days among many other Mm -hmm. clients. And so there's all these different kind of approaches and angles in in order to tell a comprehensive story about her. We wanted to have all those different pieces. And so we were thinking, okay, who can write, who can write about her as an educator, who can write about her as an art director on and on and who knew her. And we ended up with like a little handful of people, um, not everybody who contributed had known her, but Mimi Sheraton, who was, you know, who's this legendary food writer, long, long time New York Times writer, um, had known her, mm-hmm. um, had been uh, an entry level editor at Seventeen magazine when CP was the art director there. And so she had just like incredible anecdotes about life in the editorial and design departments in 19, you know, 47 mm-hmm. in, uh, in New York. And then... Um, Paula Cher had known her. Paula was a young designer in New York um, right. when CP was there, and they had just a few interactions, but she had a great story about that that related a lot to being a woman in design mm-hmm. um, 
in that era. And so she shared that story. And then Steve Heller had known her and she had been like a guest critic at one of his early classes or no, he had been a critic at one of her classes at Parsons. Oh, yeah. So he wrote about that. And then Myra Kalman, we right. just feel like Myra's work is so, uh, yeah. such, so akin to yeah. Shuki's work. Like it, it, it practically, when we first saw it, we were like, is that Myra Kalman? You <laughs> yeah. know, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, Myra actually wasn't aware of CP, so that oh, was wow. kind of, and 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 so and Wendy's work really resembles CP's too. So it was, yeah. you know, we had felt like we had several examples of artists working today whose work clearly has taken on that influence, even though CP herself, as a name and an identity, hasn't been known to these people. Um, so we asked Myra basically to do like a, an illustrated ode to CP, which she did, um, and those were the people whose you know, whose voices came into the storytelling. Um, I just wanted to tell, I just want yeah, I just wanted to kind of recognize the many facets of this woman and try to tell those different stories. Yeah, I love that. I just, this is a little bit off topic and I know we're getting short on time, but I have a, I have two more quick questions, but I just, um, I also just got the Muriel Cooper monograph. She was the mm -hmm. first um, tenured female professor at the MIT Media Lab. And Oh. And and I was, and is kind of one of the first designers to really start thinking about screens and mm -hmm. designing for screens back in the in the late eighties. And I, she to me, she's very similar. I see a lot of parallels between her and CP, and that they were kind of pioneers, very influential, uh, but largely forgotten uh, mm -hmm. in the scope of history. And so I just love that there's this. I don't even know the word that there's this kind of growing interest or more conscious interest in these women designers who have had this incredible influence and then no one knows them today. And so I mm -hmm. think your book, I think the Muriel Cooper book does a great job of bringing her to a new generation. I think your book does a good job of that, but then also outside of design also um, mm -hmm. with the food angle. And so, uh, my girlfriend loves food and cooking, and she saw it on 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 a food blog that she ran. She's like, "Do you know who this person is?" Mm -hmm. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm actually interviewing Sarah in a couple <laughs> awesome. couple days." Um, so I, so I just like I just love that this is kind of now uh, finally feels like something that people are think is important. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I have uh, kind of two quick questions that I ask everybody, uh, kind of at the end of the conversation and the first one is i'm curious what are the what's what's missing from kind of contemporary design discourse right now or, or what are the topics or issues or subjects that you think designers design writers critics should be talking about writing about working through right now oh I feel like this. I would want time to think about this. Um, yeah, I should have prepared. Gosh, you. I always, I always save this for last, and it always becomes the hardest question. Well, I mean, I pro probably if I thought about it for a long time, I'd have a lot of different answers, but I'll give you the one that comes to my mind. Okay, that's great. Straight away, um, which is just something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about, which is the way um, the world is d designed towards gender for young people. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think that it's, and I, this is, you know, coming from personal experience, I have, I have two little kids and my older one who's four, I am watching him, I'm watching him be shaped in all ways, psychologically, emotionally, socially, uh, intellectually, etc. Mm -hmm. by increasingly by things that aren't me <laughs> and, right. um, and he's kind of like a unique little kid, and I'm really noticing the way he and his friends are, are, are like taking cues from the world, and that's that's setting new like um, guardrails around who they identify as. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I guess, it's a long-winded way of saying like I, I, I'm watching identity information right now, and thinking about the ways that we don't consider how much of that is 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 designed in some ways by yeah. our um, by our material culture, um, by like colors and forms right. and things that we decide belong to one or another identity. 
And I'm, I'm really like, I, I think there's, I think it is, uh, easy to understate and yet it shouldn't be, (laughs) it should be hard to overstate how much that matters. Like in the world, like it's how we have ended up with the type of men in power we have, I I believe, and you know, and, and, and that starts really young. And so I've been, yeah, I've been thinking about ways we could redesign some aspects of our material culture to um, create fewer limits for kids. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, so first of all, I, I love that, that you kind of answered with what you're thinking about now. That's, that's the way that a lot of people end up answering that, that question. So, so um, I love that. And secondly, a, a theme that comes up in a lot of the conversation I have is how design is kind of designed objects are uh, ideologies made mm-hmm. manifest, mm-hmm. Uh, made concrete. And so that's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, but I've never thought about it in regards to children, especially mm-hmm. in how it's shaping, you know, the youngest people in the world. And so I think that's such a kind of fascinating angle on all of this. Mm-hmm. Um. My my last question is kind of who who are the the writers who have really influenced you or have shaped the way you think about kind of all of these things that we've been talking about or even who are the the, the writers that you would if you were assigning a reading list or something who are those people that you kind of always are are pointing to uh let's see well i mean there are well uh john thackera who i already mentioned mm-hmm. once was a person who i feel like was an early um he kind of opened my eyes to some of that stuff mm-hmm. around design and culture um i mean in the in the present moment like there well rob walker who i also mentioned yeah. i think yeah. does an incredible job of writing about design um i'm trying to think you know um Jeff's wife, Nicola Twilly, writes about design, really, in a lot of ways, in food and history and science all together, and does just a brilliant job, I think, of of looking at culture in a new way and from a new angle. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me. Fun to talk. This, um, Mm -hmm. like I said, I'm a big fan of of all of your work and have been looking forward to this for a while. So thank you so much for your time. This episode was recorded on November 1st, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.